All right, this is a show about submersibles that don't make it to the Titanic. Just kidding. Anyways, welcome to the green room. <laughs> we will not be talking about that. Um, but uh, happy to have everybody here. I am Ray Wong, um, co-founder and co-host here at Disrupt TV with my amazing co-host and co-founder, Vala Afshar, and our producer, L. But let's do some quick introductions from our guests. We'll do it in kind of reverse order. I'll start with uh, David, we'll go to Divya, and we'll go to Megan. So tell me where you're coming in from and what are we talking about today? Well, hello, Ray and Vala. It's great to be here again. Live from DC is where I'm at. And uh, I'm excited because you're going to hear from Megan and Divya, both about synthetic biology and data. And then I'll be the one that tries to bring it all home and says, okay, so what does this mean in the era of AI and what should companies do about it? Very, very cool. Awesome. Divya, all yours. Hey, so I'm coming to you live from San Francisco. Um, I'm really interested and excited about talking to you guys about synthetic biology and its applications in health and medicine and kind of adjacent fields. So kick it off to you, Megan. Fantastic. Great to be here. Um, I'm Megan. I'm also calling in from Washington, D.C., which is a new home uh, for me. And I'm thrilled to be talking about uh, synthetic biology and how much it's going to change the world. Excellent. Well, hey, with that, we'll kick it back off. You've off to the countdown. L, all yours. All right. Three, two. Welcome, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show, send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's a best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Uh, I see Ray on TV just about every day on uh, business and tech news uh, media, including Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, and CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Aftar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's not only my awesome co-host, he's the author of The Pursuit of Social Business, Excellent, and his new book, Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success, is going to be available this September and can be pre-ordered today on Amazon. It's already a bestseller and it's not even out. Executives around the world are paying attention to every one of his insightful, inspirational tweets. He's even been seen by major leaders around the world for his wonderful work. But more importantly, when he's not hosting, keynoting, or speaking at events at Salesforce, you can find him here on Disrupt TV, business TV outlets such as Bloomberg, and posting insightful analyses on places like ZDNet. But it's not about us. It's always been about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick off our panel on synthetic biology today? Yes, uh, we have a, a different format that our viewers uh, are accustomed to. We're going to have a panel discussion with three doctors. So Ray, I've got my notebooks. I'm planning hey, to take a lot of notes. that's why I'm wearing glasses today. Yeah, I want to right. the IQ in this room. That's right. My mom would be proud. She still wants me to go back to school to get my doctorate. It's not oh, still like uh, okay, so, so I'm going to introduce our guest, all of our guests, and then we'll start our panel session. So I'll start with Dr. Megan Palmer, Senior Director of Public Impact at Ginkgo BioWorks, where she leads efforts to ensure that biological engineering is developed with care. Dr. Palmer is also an adjunct professor of bioengineering at Stanford University, where she previously served as the executive director of biopolicy and leadership initiatives 
leading programs to explore how biological sciences and engineering is shaping our societies and to guide innovation to serve public interest. Dr. Palma co-chairs the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Synthetic Biology. Welcome, Dr. Palma, to Disruption Geek. Great to be here. Thank you. Our next uh, 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 doctor, <laughs> Dr. Demir Chander, uh, anesthesiologist, neuroscientist, and data scientist. Dr. Chander is currently investigating the specific nuclei and neural networks that enable brains to transition between various vigilant states, wake to sleep, consciousness to unconsciousness. Dr. Chander uses his cutting edge technology called optogenetics, targeted activation or silencing of light sensitive protein channels selectively expressed in neurons to perform many of these investigations. Dr. Chander's choice of clinical specialization anesthesiologist is related to the desire to further understand understanding of what makes human brains conscious. Welcome, Dr. Chanda, to the Shock TV. Thank you. It's great to be with all of you. By the way, I had to shorten all of your bios because we only have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> our, our next guest our audience is familiar with, Dr. David Bray, Distinguished Fellow, Stinson Center for Business, Executive for National Security. Dr. Bray has received both the Joint Civilian Service uh, Accommodation Award and National Intelligence Exceptional Achievement Medal. Previously, Dr. Bray served as Executive Director for the People Centered Internet Coalition, chaired by, I think, the godfather of the internet, <laughs> Wind Surf, and was named a senior fellow with the Institute of Human Machine Cognition. Business Insider, Ray, check this out. Business Insider named uh, Dr. Bray one of top 24 Americans who are changing the world under 40. And he was named Young Global Leader by World Economic Forum. He's a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV. Welcome back, Dr. Bray, to Disrupt TV. It's always great to be here with you, Vala, and thank you for that very humbling introduction. We're so happy to have you. So, so yeah, so we've got a very interesting discussion here, and this is definitely an emerging field, one of the top fields that we're seeing across the board. I'm going to start with you, uh, Megan. What is synthetic biology, and how can we use it to help address critical challenges today and in the future? Great. Uh, so synthetic biology is, uh, as you said, it's a field and it's developing the foundational tools and knowledge to be able to design biological systems. So we've been able to cut and paste DNA, which is uh, you know, the underlying code that biology runs on for roughly the last 50 years or so. And humans have been modifying biology through selective breeding of plants and animals for agriculture for, for much longer than that. But now scientists and engineers are developing even better tools to be able to read, write, edit, and evolve biological systems in ways that are easier and faster and much more precise and predictable. So these capabilities are really um, unlocking this ability to partner with biology in, in new ways. And you know, biology is uh, amazing because it's the most powerful technology on the planet that evolved us and, uh, and everyone we love. And now that we're, we're beginning to be able to really program biology. And we can use biology to, to manufacture nearly everything that is currently made through, for instance, petrochemicals in ways that is um, more sustainable and less wasteful. Um, so some have estimated like up to 60% of the physical inputs to the economy already are made or could be made with biology. It's, it's hard to get your head wrapped around that, but increasingly we're referring to the value derived from uh, these advances as the, the bioeconomy and this bioeconomy fueled by, by biotechnology is, is growing faster than, than the economy as a, as a whole. And so yeah. we're seeing you know, applications across uh, nearly every sector from health to food to manufacturing and even things like data storage using DNA to store the increasing amounts of, of data that we, we need and, and rely upon uh, in our societies. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this is a trillion dollar economy, right? Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, there. the estimates are really, uh, are really huge. They're, you know, when you scratch the surface, it's hard to get really strong numbers, <laughs> but we know it's trillions of dollars over the next decade uh, or two. And, and overall, it's just it's growing faster than other parts of the economy. So increasingly, we're going to see it uh, part of our lives. It's uh, it, the last time Dr. Bray was on Disrupt TV, we had a panel on space exploration. And 
when I when I hear about synthetic biology uh, and applications like biosensors, food and drinks, uh, you know, uh, space space exploration, drug delivery platforms, there are all these different applications. Uh, 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 Dr. Chandler, can you give us some examples so our audience, which are mostly like enterprise software, <laughs> IT, digital transformation folks. <laughs> Uh, help us, uh, you know, uh, technologists in the software space and hardware, I suppose, get a better understanding of use cases uh, that, that are exciting and will shape our future. Um, yeah, so uh, it's such an incredibly exciting field because right now we are tinkering with the code of life and we can use it to synthesize things, as Megan was mentioning, but we can also use it to intervene, interfere um, or create a new kind of alchemical magic, if you would. Uh, so let me actually, you know, you started with uh, space travel and that was on my list of things to talk about. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about how we can use synthetic biology for space travel. And one of the key ways is uh, in developing astronaut resilience. I mean, we as humans aren't really very good at traveling in space because of microgravity and the radiation environment. And there is the possibility of using gene editing tools, which are part of the toolkit of synthetic biology, to go in and maybe interfere with some of our DNA or basically interfere with our epigenome. So the ability to turn genes on and off. And that might be able to give us more tolerance to the radiation environment, which by the way is good for patients who are also undergoing chemotherapy for cancer, uh, and make us stronger and able to deal with some of the issues with microgravity. But you know, everything is kind of, um, it, it's all coming together because there are now food production systems in space that can take advantage of synthetic biology. And these kinds of things would do everything from improve nutrition to use fewer inputs like water or pesticides. Uh, and we can even engineer our plants in space to do things like scrub toxins from the environment. Uh, CO2 is a big thing for astronauts. Uh, but imagine also, again, looking back towards Earth and using these technologies to do similar things. And then when we arrive at our destination, we can use synthetic biology to take what's available wherever we end up and use it as sort of the precursors, the tools for biomanufacturing, everything wow. from habitats to, believe it or not, we can start to print drugs using these mechanisms. Um, and that doesn't even begin to touch some of the things that we can generally do in, in medicine and health. Uh, I, I can start to rattle some of that off. <laughs> That's amazing. No, no, no. It's 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 great example of space exploration and, and the use of synthetic. Uh, uh, so, so, so Dr. Bray, uh, as, a, as a practitioner technologist, the first time you and I met, you were the CIO of the FCC. How is what should a CIO know about the space? Maybe well, and I would narrow it down to yeah. IT. Yeah. So, you know, so you met me when I was at the C at the FCC. Before that, I was with the intelligence community, and even before that, I was with a little-known program called the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program back oh, in yeah. 2000. It's true. And dealt with the response to 9/11 and anthrax and SARS, the original coronavirus. And so, uh, the good news is, uh, if you look at you know the the, the tragedy that was COVID. If we had had to do vaccine production like we did back in 2002, 2003, and 2004, it would have taken two to three years. And even then, you know, and the, the good news is with what happened with COVID, you had at least two vaccines that were both designed in a computer and printed nucleotide by nucleotide with a nucleotide printer. And you can get a nucleotide printer with, for about $500,000 nowadays. So that's amazing. Uh, and these things, of course, as we know, you know, those of us that are practitioners in the space, we know the good news is technology is getting democratized. The challenging news is technology is getting democratized. And so a $500,000 nucleotide printer in, in some point in time will be a $50,000 one, will be a $5,000 one. And so what I want to give uh, kudos and props to those synthetic biology companies that are thinking about one, how do we build in some protections as this rolls forward? How can we make sure there's actually a way that it's not necessarily going to be, you know, unleashed and, and craziness is going to happen? This does go to something that I know that is near and dear both to Ray's heart and your heart, Vala, which is we have multiple revolutions happening in parallel. Yeah. And, you know, of course, AI has hit the stage, but I would say AI is not new. In fact, it's been around since the 1950s and we've gone through at least three different waves. It's just large language models have 
capture the public's imagination. Um, I do want to caveat that large language models are predictive text engines. They don't have a knowledge of facts versus lies or understanding about the world. They're just simply filling in based on the data they saw. Um, you, they're, they're a little bit more advanced than Ouija boards, but if you are familiar with what Ouija boards were, they're kind of that. And so there was an article that came out about a week ago um, that, that sort of said, oh dear, now with synthetic biology plus AI, maybe we would have AI that would recommend awful bioterrorism agents. Well, unfortunately, you don't need AI to do that. Um, you can just go online and if you have enough biological understanding, you could probably figure out which would be the bad ones and it's already out there. But then too, it does still take some, some, some intentionality and some understanding. You can't just like go to the AI and say, tell me how to do this. So one of the things that I had been sort of saying, and you can actually find things online where I talk about this immune system for the planet, it's really this recognition that we're going to need the equivalent of smoke detectors for the biological space. And if you think about it, if you'd gone back to... So sorry, like, these are biological sensors? Like, what, what exactly. Is... Yeah, just like how in the 1900s, you would have said, we have this problem. Buildings can catch on fire. It can hurt people. It can, it can hurt individuals. Um, you know, what are we going to do about it? Well, the simple answer was private companies built smoke detectors that could actually alert you of smoke in the building and then call the appropriate fire department. We're going to get to an era eventually where all these goodness are going to be possible with synthetic biology. In fact, I'm a big believer the only way we solve climate change is actually with synthetic biology. Wow. Because it That's actually- a bold statement. That, That's a bold well, statement. I mean, I've seen examples, for example, uh, I've seen examples of bacteria that can not only pull methane either in a liquid or gas format, and methane is, is depending on, on your stats, between 22 and 40 times as bad as carbon dioxide, use methane as a sugar source and return nitrogen to the soil. And according to some statistics, at least in North America, we've lost 90% of the nitrogen fixing bacteria in our soil. So it's also a solution to agriculture while also being a solution to climate change. That said, we also need to think about what's the, what's the equivalent of if something's in a building that shouldn't be, what, do, what is the alert notification and who's responding? Because yes, like all technologies, this will be a tremendous force for good, um, but we also need to be ready for when maybe some people try to use it for not so good purposes. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to see that. And I think that's a great point. And, and I really want to talk about, I mean, some of the practical applications right now. I mean, there are real world applications, right? We've seen anything from some new cells, cell products, right? The base chemicals that are being built, right? Either cells or enzymes, right? So you're seeing like that, what was diamines and other things that are being popped up. And, and these are based equipment, like these are base building blocks, like Lego blocks that are designed for any Anything from metabolic engineering to what people are building to through genome, genome editing. And so, so it's happening right now. Um, what are some of those benefits, Megan, that you're seeing right now in terms of positive disruptions that can come from synthetic biology, like what uh, David was talking about in terms of, you know, being able to address even climate change, right? This could be food. This could be energy. This could be medicines that we haven't seen, right? Clean water. Yeah. yeah I mean, when we're looking at the, uh, the outcomes, the sort of disruptive outcomes that we've been all uh, already touching upon, it's a really big deal, right? It is It is climate, it is uh, preventing pandemics uh, before they start, it is developing more uh, secure and sustainable supply chains for most of the things we need as a, as a society to not just survive, but to, to thrive. And biotechnology is really part of the solution to many of these, uh, many of these different challenges. But when we're looking at disruptions, we also want to look at you know, what are these underlying trends that are really fueling them? And I think one of them is that, you know, biology is right inherently sustainable, is a technology that's already invented itself, right? And we're just drawing from its toolbox and helping to improve those capabilities already that are sustainable and again, growing all over the world. Um, and also now these new tools of synthetic biology are allowing us to decouple the sort of design and build steps of, of biological design and biological engineering. And that means we can organize ourselves in new ways. So some of my colleagues talk about being able to biologize industry instead of just industrializing biology. So we can take advantage of the fact that biology grows everywhere to imagine a different footprint for industry, right? That is that is based in communities, that is enabling everyone everywhere to be able to harness these capabilities for the problems they see in their societies. But as David said as well, we need to make sure that we bake in the strategies 
for safety, security, sustainability into that type of footprint. And that's why I'm really excited to work in a community and a company that's really thinking about how we do both of those things at once in an integrated way. Megan, can I actually, because I know I've known you, I think we met more than a decade ago, um, but um, you've done a lot with students in iGEM. Can you tell what is iGEM and what you've done with students? Because I think it would be good for folks mm -hmm. to know. Sure. Um, so some of the, the listeners here may know about um, the first robotics competition. Um, so I did this in high school um, when we, we got a kit of parts, uh, it's like electrical and mechanical parts in order to build a, a robot that played a game. And I'm, I'm Canadian. So of course, we had to build uh, a robot that played hockey that fit inside of a garbage can um, and, uh, and then you know, played hockey against other robots sort of inspired by the same idea of uh, sort of modularity as well as innovation by involving young people all over the world, um, the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, or iGEM, uh, 20 years ago now, which is hard to believe, uh, uh, developed a, a course that became this competition that invited students to use modular pieces of, of DNA to design biological machines. Um, and instead of playing one game against each other, which might not be a good idea, uh, they could uh, develop a biological machine that uh, would solve a problem of their choosing. Um, and, and then they also contributed back one of these parts. Um, and what this has, has grown into over 20 years now is now uh, thousands of students across dozens of countries every year developing biological innovations and getting prizes not only for cool technology, but also cool ways to, to bake in social responsibility, safety, security, these elements into their designs. Um, it's, my, it's my very favorite uh, thing to go to every year. Uh, every year we're sort of surprised um, and, and, and delighted um, by what uh, these young people, which are, who are getting younger and younger, <laughs> are doing uh, all over the world and really showing us, right, how can we democratize this technology in, in ways that we can entrust these, these communities, again, to, to make the best uh, of them and really solve important problems. That's great. And Divya, I want to ask you the same question. And what, what does this mean, these, this shift as well, all these innovations? What does it mean for like medicine or biological research or even space travel? How do these come into play? Oh, yeah. I mean, actually, I want to even riff a little bit off something that Megan said that um, it, it's kind of profound if people um, might have missed it. And that is that all the machinery that biology uses uh, inherently, it does storage better than anything we've ever invented. It manufactures on its own. It doesn't require a lot of energy to do it. It's low power, high efficiency has low error rates. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to pass on our DNA from generation to generation. Oh, yeah. yep. And it's able to play nice with other biological <laughs> systems. So for all the disruptive qualities that both Megan and David talked about, um, synthetic biology is, is absolutely incredible. Um, let, let me supplement some of these disruptive use cases sort of in the fields that I work in. One of them is chronic disease and by extension longevity, because most of the most of the way we're gonna achieve longevity is by dealing with the chronic diseases that we have. So one example is cancer. We can actually modify the immune cells that already exist in our body to become better at seek, becoming seek and destroy missiles for cancer cells. We call this CAR-T therapy. Yep. Um, we can also use gene editing to start to modify pathways that uh, might result in cancers. Uh, so that's one possibility. Another is taking inherited diseases, especially when there's like a misspelling in your DNA, we can now go in and edit that out. Uh, now, you know, both David and Megan were talking about some of the ethical conundrums. What happens when you want to solve for a disease process at the level of the embryo? So perhaps a child mm -hmm. doesn't grow up to express a disease like, I don't know, cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease. If you edit the germline, which is, you know, sperm, egg, the embryo that results, that gets passed on downstream. And then it begins to bring up issues. You know, everything is dual use. Are we going to think about the possibility of engineering our race, our children uh, for desired traits? Um, for space travel, that seems to be a lot less of an issue because we want our astronauts to live. Um, but it might be, you know, in terms of giving, um, 
creating a race of haves and have nots. It's something definitely to think about while we're also democratizing the technology. So that's one use case. Uh, another one that I think is um, really interesting to mention is uh, things like antibiotic resistance. So we can now use some of these techniques to go in and edit the machinery that can kill other viruses and bacteria. So um, another set of novel uses. Uh, David mentioned things like almost being able to print our vaccines once we have a code in hand. So our re technologies have become really, really cheap. Now our writing technologies have become really, really cheap. Uh, and then there are things like biomanufacturing um, and you can even biomanufacture pharmaceuticals. So you can use your AI for drug discovery and design. And then you can just sort of print out these beautiful 3D structures. Uh, so <clears throat> when you put all of this together, uh, it's clear that all three of us are really excited about this. And I, I wanted to just mention that there are ethical, social, regulatory issues. Uh, and it's important for us to think about this as a community of, of technologists and regulators and government people and people in business so that we can all work together to create data stewardship uh, and protections. Um, and there are some really novel and interesting ways to do that, like maybe by using like barcoding, for instance, organisms or things that we edit so that it's clear who did what. Uh, and that it might not be, say, a third-party actor that maybe doesn't have the best intentions. More for so, traceability and for authentication. 100% supply chain. Um, supply chain and many, many things, including our medical supply chain, pharmaceuticals, things like that. So uh, there's there are a lot of technologies we can now use to help us with that. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the uh, ethical humane use element of this. You mentioned the reduction in cost of reading and writing. Uh, Dr. Palmer talked about biological design and engineering. Let's talk about biological data, like, you know, the, the, the various sources and our ability to analyze. Um, so do, do companies need to have an army of data scientists in order to understand and make progress in the various, uh, various applications that you referenced? Well, maybe if I could hop on that one real quick, sure. um, because I actually, not to not to plug the World Economic Forum, but there was actually an article I wrote about a month ago, I co-authored, in which I said that with biology and data, we've got to unlearn the lessons that we learned in the last decade. And so let me give you some of the lessons that we need to unlearn. First, we were told in the last decade that data is the new oil. It's not the new oil. One <laughs> oil, once you use it, it's gone. Data in this case, once you use it, is still there. And so that, that whole metaphor needs to be unlearned. The other thing is that data is something you need to hoard. Um, the reality is actually the more people and more communities that use your data, there's actually better metadata. The data actually itself gets improved. And so we've got to learn that as well. And then finally, as we go into this new era in which bio, biological data, as, as Divya was sort of indicating um, when she talked about germlines, it's not just your data. I mean, it's your parents' data, it's your siblings' data, it's future generations' data. and so especially here in the West, where so much of our considerations about data is all about the individual, that's not the case here. And so going forward, what companies need to start experimenting, and interestingly enough, it's the same thing you need to be doing for AI. Mm -hmm. So I would actually submit, you know, well, Divya was talking about the ethical considerations, which are definitely near and dear to my heart. I would submit that the ethics that we need to think about for the world going forward for AI are actually quite similar to the ethics we need to start thinking about for data are actually quite similar to what we also need to be thinking about for observations from space and whether or not you, you, know, you wanna have somebody see what you're doing from space. And what do I mean by that? The UK government in 2017 proposed what was called data trust. You can think of them as data cooperatives in which people can come together and say, I give permission for my data collectively to be used in the following fashion. And, and given that, you know, Ray, Vala, Divya, and Megan, we may be all busy. We may not have time to check all the boxes for how the data is being used. We will elect amongst the cooperative people to represent our interest. And then we go forward from there. We don't have anything like that right now. But if you look at, and I'm going to really quick just hop to examples in AI to come back and say, this is why we need to do synthetic biology. How did OpenAI train its models? Hmm. How transparent was that? Hmm. Whose data were they using? Hmm. 
So in some respects, synthetic biology with iGEM is actually ahead of the curve by actually involving students both to think through these considerations involving them. Why don't we have an AI competition and see how students can use it? Well, but we've, I had responsible, we've had responsible genomics and biology and, and, and you know, better policy thinking than we have with data. So oh, 100%, because back in 1975, they could see what was coming with DNA and recombinant DNA, and there was a lot of discussions, and it took about five or six years, but nobody was coming out and saying, one, this is impossible, or it's never going to be done. They actually worked through it. And so I worry that there's a little bit of the Silicon Valley, dare I say it, hype train that's saying somehow AI is not never happened here. I don't know what you're talking about. We, we, don't, we don't do that here at all. And, AI's been everywhere, you know? So go ahead. Your article is really important because I think your comment about a community process or a community commons for biological data, I thought that was probably the most salient point there. Oh, and it's something that, you know, I'm not going to put words into Megan's mouth, but it's something we're both passionate about. And, and I would say, so it's interesting. Studies show that humans are willing to trust an actor if three things are present. And I would define trust as the willingness to be vulnerable to an actor you cannot directly control. And the reality is there's plenty of companies we cannot directly control. There are plenty of governments we cannot directly control. We're willing to trust if we see benevolence, competence, and integrity. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent upon whatever we do in synthetic biology, but it's also incumbent whatever we do in AI. What are we doing that demonstrates benevolence? What are we doing that demonstrates competence? And most importantly, in integrity. And I would submit that's needed not just for AI and synthetic biology, but that's increasingly needed for society as a whole, too. But the global commons of biological data was the piece I got out of it. Not that I usually read this stuff, but yes. I appreciate it, right? <laughs> that was important. And we don't do that even with AI training models. Right? If we were to view AI training models that same way, we would say, here's something everybody needs a basic building block. People need this basically to prevent crime. People need this for better access to healthcare. People need this for better access to, you know, uh, resources, right? Or, or educational attainment, right? You could do those kind of things, provide those models that are there, just like you're talking about how DNA is the building blocks of individuals, but also of a civilization. And then you could also apply it to commercial space data. Here we have observations from space. But I, I will step back because I know Megan probably wants to chime in. Well, it's also worth noting there's so much more biological data out there that we haven't discovered yet, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we spoke about sort of human DNA, but right, humans are only one species. <laughs> there's this whole uh, you know, toolbox um, that is out there um, yet to be discovered. And if we do it right, we can couple right this discovery with also Right, the preservation of much of that biological diversity, right? We don't want to lose that. That's that's our biggest asset. <laughs> um, and being able to realize that it's really, you know, it it, it is a commons that um, that we are we are intrinsically a part of. And if we work cooperatively across these groups in really smart ways, we can figure out how to make sure that we can assemble that data, which is where a lot of its uses come from, is being able to bring it together, um, but also make sure that everybody is able to benefit um, from those types of innovations. But there's many transitions to go through in order to both you know, uh, collect to demonstrate those capabilities and to figure out how to do that um, really between many different groups and at a global scale. Um, this is something that David and I both worked on um, when we were working in the uh, Global Future Council on Synthetic Biology over the last uh, couple of years um, and, um, and have continued to, to think a lot about these topics going forward. Other than uh, taking your class or reading Dr. Bray's you know, World Economic Forum articles or Dr. Chandler's white papers, uh, Dr. Palmer, how can we learn more about this topic? Like, How can our audience which represent variety of industries, variety of lines of business. Uh, yeah. how, where, where can we go to learn more? There, there's a lot of different opportunities. So um, uh, one of them, uh, so the company I work for, Ginkgo Bioworks, has a, uh, a website, um, syntheticbiology.com, should be easy uh, to remember. You can see some initial case studies and some link outs uh, to our, um, uh, we have a, a magazine called Grow. Um, that also talks about the field, but also is able to have essays that think about what is it, the significance of the field. Um, there are also groups um, that are assembling uh, uh, folks who, who think and work about these topics. So just came back recently from the um, Synbio Beta conference. Um, if you wanna go see the future, come to the iGEM competition in Paris. It's its 20 year anniversary this 20th year. Anniversary. <laughs> um, so it's going to be great. 
Um, and there's also uh, uh, some courses that are available free and, and <clears throat> online. Um, one of them uh, that I'm, uh, obviously there's Stanford courses. <laughs> I'm also a guest, uh, I'm also a guest uh, faculty for a, a cool course called um, How to Grow Almost Anything that's um, based at MIT, but in many places um, where you can come and, and learn from really some of the, the pioneers in this field, um, you know, how to, how to be inspired and how to actually use the tools um, to do, uh, you know, to pursue your dreams of, of biological engineering. I love the competition reference. I was uh, fortunate enough to host the first ever hackathon at the Vatican. Mm. And uh, wow. th there were wow. 60, 60 college universities around mm -hmm. the world. We spent four days at St. Peter's Basilica and actually had a, a one-day hackathon. And the best thing for me was the future, we're in good hands. The, the young men and women that were members of this hackathon, wow, uh, unbelievably smart, creative, innovative. Uh, so I walked away super inspired. You could start a team, a new iGen team. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I do keep in touch with the Vatican, believe it or not. So if they're going to have future hackathons, I'll definitely reference. I want to see the first synthetic biology hosted by the Vatican. That's that would, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, by the way, it's not a bad place to spend a week. I, I had... You know, the food no, but that's an interesting <laughs> also juxtaposition yeah, of right, religion, right. culture, and this whole new domain, which actually gets people sometimes it gets under their skin, makes them think a little bit. What is the very um, basis of what it means to be human, you know, mm -hmm. in that sense? Uh, I wanted to throw in there because I know we're getting um, sort of short in time. There's the there are data trust models, but there's also um, if you think of us as individuals, we're also data producers. Not only are we leaving our genetic material everywhere we go, we exhale things in our breath, our skin changes color. Uh, we have a neural code. Uh, and there's some interesting um, things that we might be able to even take from adjacent places. Uh, I've been working a lot on neural rights, actually, and neural sovereignty. And the idea that the genetic code is one code we can read and write to and modify what other lessons can we learn from that other code that makes us almost the very essence of who we are? And we've been talking a lot about how there are systems of informed consent. So I don't know if you folks know, but Chile is the first country in the world that actually passed a bill of neural rights yep. as part of the constitution. Yep. And so I was just in Chile speaking with them about that. And this idea is sort of gaining momentum. So it's kind of an informed consent sort of idea. If you're going to read from my brain or write to my brain, you need to do that with my full consent. Just but the question is, what does that mean? And then people have become concerned. Does that mean that you can't develop neurotechnology in the consumer space? And so one of the things um, that we are proposing is one mechanisms by which people can transact with their own data and have agency at the edge. Um, the second is to have consent mechanisms that are kind of like what David was describing, where you sort of pre-consent to things that you want done with your data, but then you have the ability to revoke or rescind your data and that consent uh, when you wish to. Uh, and then, you know, there's a third piece of this, which is turning your data into a human right. And so we are now submitting to the United Nations because the United Nations is actually looking at neural rights and they're looking to redefine this data that comes from our brain as a human right. And it, it's interesting because you can see a lot of different rights at this touch. Uh, everything from the freedom, the freedom to, to live your life as you wish, uh, the ability to live without disability and to partake of enhancements if you wish to, and freedom from manipulation because this sort of stuff can be used to manipulate how you do and how you act. And again, uh, just as David was talking with AI, bringing those principles into this field because they're really quite adjacent, taking what we've been developing in neural rights and moving that into this field of synthetic biology is also not, relevant. Not to Third go first human right. Yeah, <laughs> we had a friend that looked at that. Our friend Richie was looking at the 31st human right. Um, but, but not to go too deep into this, but I was reading the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist papers over the last six weeks. And if we were to rebuild a country with those rights mm -hmm. in mind, Imagine what the design process would be and what yeah. additional rights we would have been given, right? Not just on synthetic biology, also on AI and, and also what happens in a world of mods. Like, will I have the right to be disconnected and not to be seen as a terrorist? 
Could I even be disconnected and transact in this world? And it starts with basic questions of, do we keep cash, which is the only anonymous form of value exchange? Yes. Right. So it's going to be things like that that are going to be the bigger issues and policy implications around the world. And, and you know, that manipulation. I mean, this is a mutable blockchain. <laughs> I mean, if you want to really go so, deep. And, and I, I would say you're sort of going where I was going to go is, is that not only do we have six or seven different technological revolutions happening in parallel, all of which that beg ethical and society questions. Synthetic biology is one of them, but there's plenty more. What does human rights look like? Well, it's also unclear who's going to set the standards because, yeah. you know... Is, we'll is take the Chinese version. We'll take the American version. Yeah. We'll take a yeah. European version. Oh, and, 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 and with AI, I just saw a briefing. Uh, I want to give a shout out to JP Singh at um, George Mason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 54 different AI policies at the moment for 54 different countries. No coordination amongst them. And it's only going to get more in nature. And so ask Vala, well, he can't comment, but how does Salesforce feel like they have to navigate 54 different policies for AI? And, and how is that going to get in? So and he, he's at the Institute for Sustainable Earth, right? At George Mason. Yeah, he, he's there in, in some other Do, activities. Do, Dr. Kaifu Lee warned us five, six years ago that we're going to have, you know, his, his book was AI Superpowers, China, US. Well, but that's just it is. What it says is actually it's not. It's actually, so what's interesting is there's different clusterings. And what's interesting is um, the Spanish speaking nations are a clustering of themselves and actually the ones that are most focused on how AI is going to impact jobs. Um, China, interestingly enough, is actually looking at how it's going to impact talent. And that's partly because they can control the talent pipeline in ways that other countries can't. Um, Europe, of course, is doing a lot around uh, data protections. But it actually shows that actually it's not the narrative of it's just China, U.S. and EU as superpowers. Actually, there are several countries because they don't have legacy burdens, whereas we do have legacy burdens in the United States that are just leapfrogging directly ahead. And so be surprised when the countries you never expected actually show a better way in doing AI than the ones that you were expecting. will not be surprised. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been exciting to see in, um, in the field of synthetic biology is there's actually been attempts over quite a long period of time now for countries to come together to discuss their, their roadmaps and their strategies and ways that they can be working together in, the, in this field. So um, in, in 2019, there was a, a global forum of about 12 countries that came together to discuss their uh, their synthetic biology, biotechnology, engineering biology, and uh, bioeconomy roadmaps. <laughs> um, and then just this last um, February in Singapore, I think there was about 20 or so different countries. Um, and there's many more, uh, many more countries that are now assembling their their own strategies. And if we do it, you know, if we do it the right way, we find um, the opportunities for for collaboration again on these these challenges that face every nation. And, and are really global challenges that cross borders, whether it's climate change or, or pandemics or you know, the security of global supply chains. And Megan, is, is, I don't, I don't, it, this is happening outside of the UN, correct? This is actually com countries coming together on their own. It's countries coming together, but also you see that there's these various fora that, that do exist, right? From uh, the uh, critically in this field is the Biological Weapons Convention. So we have chosen as a world not to weaponize biology that enables us to have um, all of these peaceful and prosperous uh, uses of the field, but there's also the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, right? There's a number of these different discussions. There's discussions in the scientific community on many of the ethical quandaries um, that, that were coupled to the development of the field. And now many of the challenges, it's something we've been looking at, uh, again, in, with the, uh, the Global Future Council and also with iGEM, is right, how do we develop those organizations that help to bridge these communities and also bring in all of the other communities that need to be um, involved in steering the trajectory of, of developments. And increasingly that's, right, that's businesses, but also civil society, education, uh, many different groups that, that um, we need to have involved if we're actually going to transition to more biology-based, more sustainable societies. I think actually in the business space, um, it's a good place to go because a lot of this data, this digital data, um, is very cross-jurisdictional. So as you know, David was pointing out, all these different AI policies all over the world. Well, um, we've been trying to build a certification process now for companies that actually want to work in some of these spaces. And that might be a way to sort of bridge this gap. It doesn't matter where you're 
situated as a company, you know, maybe you can get a UL listing for uh, certain practices and standards that protect the digital data that's being collected. And you can get that stamp of approval. And um, now that company also has a kind of trust in the same way and a fiduciary responsibility in the same way that David was referring to with more collective data trust. And, I and I'll, saw, I'll, I'll go ahead, Vaughn. Go ahead, Vaughn. Yep. I, 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 just, I just read a report of uh, private sector investments in AI by country from 2013 to present. So the last decade, US was top 250 billion, China was number two at 100 billion, Canada was in the top four, about I think 8 billion, India just became number six, I think 7 billion. But certainly, you know, 350 billion, just private, private sector, US, China. Do you have a sense of how much private sector is investing in this science, in this field, and which industries are leading uh, in terms of their investments? Is it healthcare, agriculture? Like, which, who, who are the major players that, in the private sector that's going to help get this to a trillion dollar market uh, that you mentioned at the beginning? I think it, you know, it's, it's uh, very difficult to get your arms wrapped around all of these different sectors, right? And we mentioned before these different estimates, these sort of trillion dollar estimates, and there's some, some analyses done. Uh, that particular figure around 60% uh, of, of the physical goods um, that are input to the economy being produced uh, or producible by biology came from a McKinsey Global uh, report. Um, but there's now efforts within U.S. government and elsewhere to develop better metrics for uh, the, the current bioeconomy um, and that in the in the future. Um, now, it's uh, often that we separate out this field into sort of that, you know, in, industrial base, the foundational science and technology. But then when you start to say, right how much is in agriculture or how much is in healthcare? Um, it, it's hard to draw the boundaries around many of many of these topics. So what I would say right now is we're trying to, uh, to see where we can track efforts as a baseline <laughs> um, to get those measures. That's a big effort. Um, groups like NIST um, and, and elsewhere are beginning to develop the technologies department of commerce and elsewhere. It's worth actually mentioning that I mean, in, a, in the U.S., a significant leap forward, I'd say, uh, last year was uh, the announcement of an executive order on biotechnology and biomanufacturing, um, as well as legislation in um, chips and science that is enabling this sort of coordination of activities and also accounting for the growth uh, over time. So we have some loose metrics now, um, and we'll hopefully have much better ones <laughs> in the very near future. Yeah, and some of the, I mean, what the leaders in this investment have been the UK and the US and Canada and Australia, from what I can tell. So definitely some of the things that are there, we don't have numbers from China, of course, but but I think there's definitely significant investment over there. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is very interesting. I want to hit one last point, and Dval, I'm sure you've got a couple more questions too as well. I want to hit one last point before how we end this is the notion of data. The, the human body is a reservoir of so much data and you are right on the efficiency, right? I mean, today we're talking exabytes, maybe yoltabytes, which are 10 to the 24th in the future, right? But we're at a point where it's almost like, you know, we can get to 10 to 99th, right? I mean, that's what the human body's doing. And, and there's some efficient storage and, and like all good things, like, you know, nature provides a lot of great models for us to actually mm -hmm. study in terms of being much more efficient with energy, with consumption, you know, with how we learn. I mean, it's all sitting right there and it's kind of fascinating. And so the question to the three of you real quickly before we wrap is, is really, you know, what other advancements do you think we'll learn from nature and from science around us that, that are going to inform synthetic biology going forward? And, and I want to wrap my question around what just Ray asked. Let's fast forward 10 years from now. It's 2033. Yeah. What do you hope that the field that you're advancing, and we've got the world experts on uh, uh, synthetic biology, is it live longer, healthier planets, cleaner water, food production, like cure for cancer? Like, what, what do you hope? What is your personal aspiration leading this journey? 10 years from now, what do you hope that we- world that doesn't like, like idiocracy. No, I'm just kidding, keep going. <laughs> what motivates you for the next 10 years? What do you hope to see? Megan, you wanna go first, and then Divi and I'll close. Sure. sure. Um, 
I love the question of, you know, what is the world we wish for with, with biology? It's one of the ones I use with my students um, as well. And I think all, many of the things that you called out, um, right, how do we live more sustainably? How do we live more, uh, more securely, not afraid of, of biology, but rather using it as a, as a tool of empowerment um, for many of these communities. And, and at the end of the day, I want us to have inspiration and awe from biology, right? It's, it's not just like any other technology, right? It's the technology that made us. Um, and, and so I hope we also keep um, that, that, that awe um, in, in, our, in our hearts and use it to inspire new ways of working, new ways of industry, and also use it to, um, you know, educate all of our communities in being literate in, in biology um, so we can frankly build, the, build together the world we wish for. I love that. Thank you. Steven? Yeah, so um, I'll answer Ray's question first. Um, the things that I'm really excited about is when the use of synthetic biology um, for biomimicry of materials on this planet, you know, whether it be spider silk or self-healing skin or all kinds of amazing things. Uh, the second is neuromorphic computing. Uh, oh, this yeah. gets to efficiency and power, but uh, nothing yet in computing in silico has come close to what the human brain can accomplish mm -hmm. with the power of about a dim light bulb. And um, it seems like one. <laughs> yeah, 20, 20 yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that can happen too. Um, <laughs> you know, there is one very interesting thing, and that is that a lot of our machines that do our computing can be plugged into a constant energy source. We need to eat to metabolize. The brain is very, very expensive as it fires. But yet, we are, it's still such an efficient, incredible thing. And it's architecture and structure and the way that it deals with noise. Uh, it's it's just a beautiful system. So I, I'm really excited to see how neuromorphic computing takes off. Um, and then the other thing I'm really excited about in, in synthetic biology is, uh, I mean, editing the genome is really, really cool, but being able to turn our epigenome on and off. So our ability um, to sort of survive and coexist and cohabit in an environment and then turn things up or down as they need to be to enable that survival. Um, so that, those are the technologies I'm excited about. I didn't even mention like 3D organoids and stem cells, but I'll just throw that into the mix. <laughs> My aspiration for this technology is that we can now live longer lives, so longevity, but with mm -hmm. the easing of human suffering and even the augmentation of capabilities that restore human agency to people but in harmony with the biosphere and supporting species diversity. And I think that of all the technologies we have, synthetic biology has the power to sort of unlock that beautiful balance, that dance that we are doing with our biosphere. Wow, beautiful answer, wow. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I'll try to bring it home. Um, so first I wanna do a, a, a minor reveal is that uh, both uh, Megan and Divya are, are actually Loomis Council members at the Stimson Center uh, of which I'm as well. And so it is an honor to interact with all of them. And Stimson is uh, one of the few action-oriented NGOs that I have come across. I say, if you wonder who the original MacGyver worked for, because uh, <laughs> uh, we were created in the eighties, we were born in the eighties. So um, that said as well, um, so, so to answer your question, I actually had through someone I, that 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 had known me for several several years, more than fifteen years, uh, a chance to go brief NASA's leadership uh, on what were policy things they shouldn't be they they hadn't been thinking about, and I didn't talk at all about space. Uh, I actually came back to we've got to figure out how we can better understand first, second, third order impacts to the planet, because the reality is economics is not a good science for doing that. And so as we go forward in this world in which we're thinking about not just synthetic biology, but AI, and we're thinking about commercial space, and we're trying to plan for how well-intended policies might have second or third order effects that we don't see that if we could get ahead of, we could actually make sure they uplift more people. Um, I hope that in 10 years, we have a science of systems in which we understand how different systems layer on top of each other. Uh, because I love how Divya has been talking about all the benefits to humans. Megan's reminding us that, yes, we are just one of one of many species here on the planet that's both plant and animal. We need to understand how those systems interconnect. And, and, and I, I still come back to, why do I care about synthetic biology? It's, I mean, I have a six-year-old. I am thinking about how we're going to address climate change. Because, you know, yes, space one day, it might be amazing if we get there. I'll differ with Divi. I think it's going to be robots that go and not us. But I know the science wants to show that it's humans there. I think it's going to be robots. But regardless, 
I think we still need to remind ourselves, this is still the one planet we've ever known. This is still the pale blue dot. And, and the good news is we're 8 billion people. The challenging news is we're 8 billion people. And we have to figure out how do we coexist with everything that we all want as we uplift our standards of life. And so if we can actually have a science of systems that begins to understand and move up the Maslow hierarchy of how things sort of interrelate and actually be predictive as opposed to economics, which I hate to say, game theory has been shown to be correct 30% of the time in terms of how people, so that means you're wrong 70% of the time. I don't really want to base my policy making on something that's wrong 70% of the time. We must do better. And what I would submit is, because that's very abstract, I would love to see some international body set forward a challenge, which is bring me your ideas. I mean, maybe it's Greta. I mean, maybe it's somebody that says, bring me your ideas for how we can actually make a difference on climate change. And each year, just show me what you can do. Wow. Well, that's a very, very great summary of this multi-trillion dollar industry ahead of us, something that's going to impact our life, our lives for the next, uh, I'd say, century. Uh, this is probably the innovation of the century that we're going to be seeing for quite some time. Uh, and more importantly, I mean, we need a plan. <laughs> we're totally clueless. <laughs> so I want to thank Dr. Megan Palmer, Dr. Divya Chander, of course, Dr. David Bray for being here. Thank you so much for being on the show and enlightening us here and uh, maybe somewhere else in Half Moon Bay one day. So, all right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Woo. Oh, my God. Crazy. Excellent stuff. That was awesome. I have to admit, uh, I need to spend more time in this space. I, uh, I just don't know enough about it. This hour was amazing, super eye-opening. Uh, I'm thinking, will the first trillionaire be someone in this space? The first person to actually, and I'm not trying to equate this to wealth, but it seems like a super exciting, robust, multifaceted space that has huge implications and disruption potential across all industries. Um, your thoughts uh, of an hour of, certainly my mind was expanded <laughs> significantly about synthetic biology. And well, like I said, I had to put on my glasses to be a little bit smarter, at least appear smarter today. Ray, I, I'm, I rare, I'm rarely the smartest person in any room of any size, and today is a perfect example of it. <laughs> I would agree. You were surrounded by brilliant scientists, humanitarians, and people that are futurists. Um, I think that's the important thing. Look, I started out my career really, really young in high school. I actually was a Westinghouse finalist in the science talent search, uh, looking at cancer cells, trying to figure out if there's a way to actually identify them. And I just, you know, I, it was uh, it was a field that was really early in the time. It was the precursors to magnetic resonance imaging, and and that's how I got involved in, into science. And I gravitated towards you know software and computers because it was a lot more actionable, a lot more fun. I feel like I need to go back to school because the next set of innovations are here, right? These synthetic biology advancements. I mean, right? Think of the materials we're going to use. Think about systems uh, thinking that was discussed here. Think about all the advancements in healthcare, right? Um, and how will they be distributed across organizations and countries and you know industries? And 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 it is a brand new field. It will change economies. It will change worlds. Wars will be fought over this. Um, you know, spies are actively trying to you know gather intelligence in this space to to make their countries better, right? All, all these things are happening, and and we're here very you know, arguing about stupid things. <laughs> it's, it's really sad. And so I, I think this is a field we're going to spend a lot more time on in the future. And, and I'm, I'm glad that we were enlightened by these three individuals. So what about yeah. you? No, I, I first of all, I, I, I have such deep, deep admiration for people that are working in deep, complex, uh, science-oriented fields. Uh, like my, my graduate study was tomography, understanding. Oh, wow. Hey, I spent two, yeah. <laughs> I spent two years trying to predict electron storms in the ionosphere, the fifth layer of the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was three-dimensional tomography. So I capture all the data from low orbiting satellites and ground-based receivers and take that data and build three-dimensional models of electron storms. And how much richness uh, that uh, you know the Air Force was able to glean from having a better modeling techniques to improve satellite communication. But my point was complex space, super important to be data oriented, and then distribute your insights in a way that was more 
the enhanced contextual intelligence of the problem space that you're trying to tackle or the solution space. And uh, so when I listened to three PhDs talk about all the various applications and benefits in, 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 a, in an endeavor that's going to be a long journey, <laughs> you know, uh, and I hope all three are going to reach their aspirational goals of the next 10 years because I think they're working on really important, important field that can advance society. Again, whether it's food production or climate or clean water or aging or what, whatever, whatever, these are all big, admirable uh, uh, pursuits and they, they're lifelong pursuits. This isn't, you know, in, in, your, in, in the space you and I are familiar with, you can build enterprise software in a couple of years, implement it, and you problem solved. <laughs> like, well, that was my point, right? Just the speed know, of software. Yeah, yeah. Me. I mean, it was very alluring yeah, to me. Yeah, it's immediate I mean, chaos. Right, so, right. And it, but, I can't even tell you where software will be 10 years from now. But I mean, it's but, just. But hey, we've got amazing CEOs, CMOs, and yeah, best selling yeah. authors again next week. Let's do this, and we'll jump in back to the backstage with our guests. Well, next week, we have Niha. Merchandani, CMO, head of people at Brightplan. We have Adam Nathan, CEO of Almanac. And Ooh. we have Josephine Campbell, author of Power Barometer. Yes. So CMO, CEO, and uh, author of a new book, Power Barometer. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Bye.